peculiar time of the year when it's to know where you are and why you have been kidnapped. Well, the bridge of sound. The guys who works here went psycho. Welcome to October by May. The short stories of Edward T. May. Presented by James Allen May. The West can be insane. Yesterday, the sky was a burnt amber as smoke from the forest fires filled the air, the temperature almost 90 degrees. Today, all is gray as the snow is falling and the temp sits low at 35. When I'm out running, I watch for rattlesnakes on the paths of the plains and mountain lions on the hiking trails of the mountains. All of this has been giving me serious Old West vibes. Today's first story actually brings us there as we join Thad Jackson in 1880 riding his horse through the plains as he seeks refuge from a storm and finds an abandoned farmhouse. Where are the homesteaders? Their belongings remain, but there is no trace of them. Did they suddenly decide to abandon their frontier life? Were they taken captive by a war party? Or perhaps Thad is not as alone as he had thought. Descents. The sleep of reason produces monsters. Francisco José de Goya, Los Disparates. Thad Jackson marked the progress of the menacing billows as they bellied out of the west like pirate sails, the prairie beneath turning charcoal gray. With a practiced eye, he gauged the direction and speed of advance. Sensing a Great Plains gully washer was on the way, his mount became restive as well. Easy boy, Thad murmured as he patted its neck. Years of trapping and trailblazing had left Thad's face tanned and textured until it was nearly indistinguishable from his buckskin leggings. After a brief survey of the area, he nudged the horse toward an extensive outcropping of limestone in the hope of finding a cave or an overhang spacious enough to afford shelter. Being unwilling to risk an injury to his horse, Thad sent a casual pace over the uneven terrain. Though he'd spoken no more than three score words to fellow humans during the previous six months, Thad now coaxed and cajoled his horse as it negotiated limestone shards and sage-covered slopes with a steady stream of soothing blandishments. Bad boy. Easy now, Thad drawled. Veins of lightning pulsed through the ebon sky above Thad's head, the ensuing concussions rattling his teeth. Still, Thad kept to an unhurried pace. Eventually, a plopping sound could be heard. The rain, as if unsure its moment had arrived, fell in a tentative fashion, the drops scattering far and wide across the landscape. The moisture quickly gained confidence, however, and the rainfall eventually swelled to biblical proportions. Through the cascades, Thad spied a farmhouse and prodded his mount toward the shelter at the same plodding pace. We'll get there. Don't you worry none about that. Little water tank gonna hurt us none, but you break yourself a leg well. Then we're both in a fix for sure, Thad advised. 
As Thad neared the house, it became apparent the structure had been abandoned for quite some time. He stabled his horse on the covered porch and entered the house. After his eyes adjusted to the gloom, he noted all the household furnishings had been inexplicably piled on one side of the room. Thad moved to the hearth and kindled a fire. He rose, unfastened his gun belt, and suspended it from an antler projecting from the wall above the mantel. As the flames began licking the hearthstones, Thad stripped down to his long underwear and draped his wet clothing over the mantel. Thad sat cross-legged on the floor, his back to the fire, and surveyed his refuge. Although it was obvious the house had been deprived of maintenance for many years, it had been soundly constructed and showed no sign of leakage. His attention was drawn once again to the mound of furniture and personal belongings on the far side of the room. It seemed the family had abandoned their entire stock of possessions and fled in haste. Thad could conceive of only one explanation allowing for such a unique scenario, said explanation being hostile Indians. But why the pile? Why would the farmers waste precious time assembling furniture, carpets, and dry goods into one huge mound? As the fire grew in size and illuminated the room, Thad spied more details. He noticed some of the furnishings exhibited charred spots, and from the middle of the blackened areas jutted arrows. He then realized the mound had not been created by the homesteaders, but rather by an Indian war party. After shooting a few flaming arrows into the tables and chairs, the Indians, assuming it would soon turn into a raging bonfire, departed for the next homestead. War parties haven't ranged this territory in, well, nigh 15 years, Thad mused. He suddenly snapped his fingers. This must be. It's got to be the Peterson place. Either that or the Sheridan homestead. Thad considered the history of the area for a moment. Some 19 or 20 years in the past, a Sioux uprising had raged through the area like a prairie fire. When the cavalry managed to regain control, they could find no sign of the Peterson family or the Sheridan clan. Three separate frontier myths were spawned to account for the disappearances. One tale assumed the families had all been captured and taken to the Indian encampment to be used as slaves or traded to other tribes. Although it was common knowledge fast-moving war parties seldom took prisoners, this yet remained a popular explanation for the missing homesteaders. A second yarn posited the families had escaped using their draft animals. Upon reaching safety, they decided frontier living was far too dangerous, and they simply began a new life in a more secure locale. This story failed to account for why, once the area was under control of the military, the families did not return to collect their possessions. The third myth proved to be the strangest of all, originating with a group of buffalo hunters who claimed they'd spend a night at the Sheridan homestead about a year after the family had disappeared. The legend stated the families had fled without provisions into the surrounding hills and subsequently died of exposure, coyotes and other animals disposing of their bodies. The buffalo hunters swore the spirits of the homesteaders still roamed the area begging the occasional passerby to seek out their bleached bones and provide them with a Christian burial. Thad dismissed the speculations with a grunt. After finding his tobacco was too wet to burn, he began chewing a chunk of dried buffalo meat. He listened to the downpour as it thrummed on the roof and splattered off the limestone with the sound of frying bacon. The rain was frightening in its intensity. Thad noticed the fire was burning low and cast about for more fuel. Any combustibles outside the house would be thoroughly soaked. Quite naturally, 
He looked to the pile across the room for succor. Smashed and broken, the furniture was useless for its intended purpose, so he had no qualms about burning the wreckage. After tossing an armful of table legs on the fire, Thad returned for more. He collected the remains of chairs and placed it next to the fire. On his third visit, he noticed a large cupboard propped a few feet off the ground and resting face down on the heap. He braced his legs and, by dint of great effort, righted the cupboard in its former position against the far wall. Underneath the cupboard, he found a hope chest. Curious as to what might be within, he began dragging the chest near the hearth in order to examine the contents by the light of the fire. As he did so, the rug underneath the chest was moved as well, revealing a square metal plate about three feet on a side. Thad left the chest and inspected the metal plate. Using a handle, cunningly constructed so the surface of the plate remained smooth and flush with the surrounding floor, he lifted the trap door. Blackness. Thad slipped on his boots, found a stub of candle, lit the wick and returned to the trap door. He noted the underside of the metal plate was a mass of scratches and scars. Thad descended, using footholds chipped out of the limestone, until he was approximately six feet below the floor of the house. A passage, varying from two to four feet in width and about five feet in height, led in either direction. He chose a direction at random. Crouching slightly, he proceeded down the tunnel. The ground was littered with broken glass. Occasionally, he would find an empty, unbroken jar used originally to preserve foodstuffs. As he proceeded down the tunnel, the sound of the rain grew less by degrees. Eventually, he was encompassed by primeval silence. Approximately 30 feet from the trap door, the tunnel debouched into a small cave. Thad scanned the area. More glass, a pocket watch, an empty six-shooter, a book, and a knife, its point broken and its cutting edge notched and dull. Quilts and blankets formed a makeshift bed. Thad picked up the book and opened it to the first page. The Journal of a Homesteading Family. Written by Caleb Sheridan, the journal was a personal account of the activities of the Sheridan family after moving west. Thad found an entry concerning the cellar and began reading. April 19th, 1874. While digging a well, Joshua and I discovered a system of tunnels and caves created by the hand of God below the ground. I have decided to use the area as a cellar and, with the Almighty's help, build our house upon it. The house will thus be firmly set on a foundation of rock. The cellar will also be used as a refuge from twisters and the savages that still roam unfettered through the land. I plan to obtain a piece of metal and fashion a trap door. Should the heathens uncover the door, they will be unable to breach it with fire or axe. As Thad read the words, unable to breach, he thought of the gouges he'd seen on the underside of the trapdoor and shuddered. He pictured one of the homesteaders, in desperation, using a shard of broken glass or a rock in a vain attempt to penetrate the trapdoor. He could almost hear them grunting with the effort, cursing and crying by turns as the metal stood the test, and unprotected hands bled freely. The hopeless activity carried out in utter darkness. He flipped through the pages until he found mention of Indians. January 11th, 1874. Thomas Peterson, his good wife Becky, and their daughter Martha came today and brought word of Sioux war parties in the area. 
Together with my wife Emily and our son Joshua, we watched and prayed for three hours. Late afternoon, we saw the savages riding toward us from the north. We moved into the cellar, bolted the trap door, and waited, trusting in providence. Soon, we heard noises as the heathens entered our house unbidden and began indulging in immoderate behavior. We heard breaking glass, splintering wood, and their detestable whooping for more than an hour. We waited for an hour more after the noises ceased before attempting to leave. We found the door would not open. The savages had somehow unknowingly imprisoned us by placing ponderous objects over the trapdoor. January 12, 1874. I am aware of the date only by virtue of counting off the hours on my pocket watch. Without our oil lamps and candles, the darkness is all-encompassing, and I have cautioned the others' forbearance in the use of them as we know not how long we shall have to abide in this place. We have a cask of fresh water and some preserved foods to sustain us for a small space of time. We have blankets and quilts to keep us warm, but no clothing other than what we wear on our backs. We have very little, but with faith in the Almighty, what we possess is enough. No noise has been forthcoming from the house above. Have all the inhabitants in the area been massacred? Do we alone remain alive? Date unknown. I've just awakened and my watch indicates the time is 12 o'clock. I do not know how long I've slept. Is it midnight or noon? Is it the 12th or 13th or perhaps even the 14th? Joshua stands a vigil by the trap door. He listens for any noise from above, but unless he hears the visitors in conversation, he will remain ignorant of whether they are civilized or heathen. The trapdoor remains our only means of escape. All else is rock, and we lack the tools necessary to secure our freedom by tunneling. We pass the time by reading from the Bible, singing songs, and speaking of our plans for the future. Thad stopped reading for a moment and considered how the homesteaders must have felt. Fear of the Indians? Shock of imprisonment? Disoriented by the darkness? How long had it taken for panic and the sister scourge of madness to infect the group? As Thad continued reading, he noticed subsequent entries quite often were not written in a straight line, the letters crooked and childlike. At first he thought the change was due to incipient madness, but the content of the entry showed the writer to be of sound mind. Thad realized the new style of writing sprang not from insanity, but rather from the necessity of writing in total darkness. He skipped pages at a time, reading passages at random. Date unknown. The temptation is great to have a flame burning at all time, but we used the last of the oil an hour ago, and remaining candles must be rationed along with the food. We no longer read the Bible by candlelight. I recite familiar verses I have learned by rote, and we pray the Lord's Prayer together. Date unknown. At the first sound from above, we have determined to cry for assistance. Whether the visitors be white or red is no longer important. The darkness is becoming intolerable, and our food and water, despite being meted out in small portions, is all but depleted. Our faith alone sustains us. 
Before our food and water supplies have been thoroughly exhausted, we have decided to use the candles that remain to search through the worn of crevices and passageways for some form of sustenance. Someone remains at all times by the trap door, keeping watch. It has been said Satan finds mischief for idle hands. Such is the case with Martha and Joshua, for Martha is now with child. Joshua is fifteen and Martha is sixteen. They are soon to be parents. Praise be to God, for he has rewarded our faithfulness. Our search has yielded both water and food. We discovered a river running underneath a portion of the rock. By standing in the shallows with our shirts spread before us in the manner of nets, we were able to entrap five fish. Of course, it was necessary to eat them uncooked. We have also found, clinging to rocks under the water, snails and occasionally a salamander. We have paid a heavy price for our good fortune. Only a single candle remains. We must all learn to find our way to the river in the dark before all means of lighting our way is gone. Joshua was desirous of immersing himself in the water and letting it carry him to freedom, but I forbade him from doing so as the river may run underground for miles before surfacing. Though we have managed to extend the life of our only candle by using an empty shotgun shell to collect melted wax around a piece of cloth, we are yet in near constant darkness. Further explorations have revealed a cave where a number of bats are in the habit of roosting. By casting stones, we were able to kill three of the creatures. Once again, it was necessary to eat them uncooked. We have yet to find the passage the bats used to gain access to the outside world. It is probably too small to admit a human, at any rate. Amazingly, we have remained free from illnesses. Praise be to God. Much of our time is occupied by searching for food and sleeping, but we also engage in book learning. Without the books, of course. It's devilishly difficult to teach some subjects, reading and writing, for example, without a primer and slate. Other subjects, such as practicing ciphers and spelling, are easy to perform inside our heads. History and some aspects of geography are also dedicated to memory and help to keep our minds off of our predicament. Neither do we spare the most important subject of all, the Word of God. Often we pray, and discuss the Bible, and sing hymns. Emily was standing watch by the trap door when she heard a small party of people entering our house. She immediately cried out, hoping to gain their attention. Martha and Becky soon joined her, but to no avail. The intruders left without offering assistance. This incident devastated Emily's morale, and I fear for her sanity. She has developed a craving for light, even as the inhabitant of an opium den craves the fruit of the poppy. She is completely bald, having cut off her hair for use as a fuel, burning it tress by tress. She is nearly naked from burning her clothing as well. I have hidden all matches lest she burn the blankets and quilts as well. I have also hidden all bullets for fear of what she may do with them. Martha has given birth to a boy filling me with both joy and sadness. I feel joy as I would at the birth of any of God's wondrous creations. Yet, if we are not rescued from our confinement, the child will know nothing of the beauty of the world above. 
and would live his life in the cold and dark, feeding off raw animal flesh. Thad wondered if the intruders mentioned in the entry were none other than the buffalo hunters. Had they heard the womenfolk calling out and assumed they were ghosts? Although the journal writer quickly lost all track of time, Thad realized, after reading this entry, the group had been confined to their underground world for a minimum of nine months. Thad, a man by no means unfamiliar with hardships, marveled at the ability of the sodbusters to endure the travails they had been subjected to for such a measure of time. He continued reading. Emily rarely speaks. She remains curled in her quilts for hours on end. The unforgiving darkness has unhinged her mind. Becky is showing signs of following in Emily's path. Though I counseled Martha and Joshua to practice temperance, Martha is once again with child. If we are not emancipated soon, we will all surely go mad. I have decided to let the river take me under the rock and into the sunlight. May God assist me in this endeavor, and may he bless us all with his infinite love. Here the journal ended, and Thad could only assume Caleb had died in his attempt to swim beneath the rocks. The candle had burned low, and was now only as thick as a nickel. Thad poked his head around the corner and peered down the tunnel leading from the cave. The passage led for twenty feet before curving down and to the right. Thad had every intention of investigating further, but decided it was in his best interest to do so with either a full oil lamp or a new candle. He retraced his steps to the trap door and then continued past it, wondering what lay in the other direction. It soon became apparent that section of the tunnel was nothing more than a dead end. It petered out after a few paces, forming a crevice too small for even a child to squeeze through. Satisfied with his initial inspection, Thad turned to leave, and as he did so, he saw them. There were three of them, standing between him and the trap door. As naked as on their day of birth, they stood just outside the circle of light provided by the guttering candle, shielding their faces with their hands. Staring at this here candle must be for them like staring at the sun, Thad concluded after he'd recovered from the shock of seeing them. He stared at the trio facing him, aghast at the milky white skin spotted with open, running sores, and the hair and beards matted with filth. Even for Thad, a man used to the awful stenches of the frontier, the odor was overwhelming. All three were males, all of them in their late teenage years. Although they were painfully thin, Thad noticed muscles snaking beneath their papery skin. Not bulky muscles, but rather the kind resembling the metal bands used to constrict barrel staves. Them's the kind that are pure hell in a wrestling match, Thad considered with growing unease. Must be what comes from climbing through caves in the dark and eating snails and worms and bats and critters such as that. As the flame dwindled in magnitude, the area illuminated receded accordingly and the three men advanced a corresponding distance toward Thad. Thad looked for something to burn. Any material would do as long as it kept the flame alive and the men at bay. He ripped off a piece of his long johns, but as it was still wet, it refused to ignite, hissing instead like an irritated snake. Caleb's journal was dry, but Thad had left it at the other end of the cellar. Thad harbored no illusions concerning his situation. 
The three men would not view him as a rescuer and greet him with open arms. As far as they were concerned, they did not need to be rescued from anything. Their entire lives had been spent in the darkness. They knew nothing of the world above. They viewed that as nothing more than a trespasser in their territory. Worse yet, a rival competing for scarce foodstuffs. Thad knew they would feel compelled to kill him. He thought of his six-shooter and knife hanging from the antler in the room above and muttered a curse in self-reproach. There was no denying he was scared, but in his experience he'd found fear tended to give a man an edge, providing him with an extra burst of speed or additional strength. I've been in my fair share of scrapes before, Thad assured himself. Man and beast have done their best to break me and I'm still here alive and kicking. Thad and the three men continued the eerie, silent standoff. Thad considered reasoning with the men, but was unsure what to say. He wondered how much the elders among the Sheridan and Peterson clans had been able to teach these three before passing away. Since they hadn't tried to communicate with Thad, perhaps they had no knowledge of language whatsoever. Would they be able to understand him? The candle had but a few seconds of light remaining. The body language of the three men indicated they had every intention of attacking Thad when darkness reigned once again. What could he possibly say? Thad took a few steps to his rear until he felt his back against a rock wall. He didn't want anyone sneaking up on him from behind. The tunnel narrowed at that point, and Thad found some comfort in the fact only one antagonist at a time would be able to attack. Thad was desperately trying to think of something to say to the trio, when the flame at last fizzled and died. Other than a sickly gray light seeping in from the trap door, the tunnel was bathed in blackness. Thad tossed the useless candle to one side and braced himself for the coming scuffle. It was at that moment Thad thought of the word. Had these men learned any language at all, it would have been one of the first words they'd been taught. The word represented a concept as old as mankind, and in the shadow of that concept stood a host of positive connotations. If these benighted creatures had managed to retain the merest scrap of humanity, Thad believed this one word would resurrect at least one pleasurable memory, and he hoped they would in turn associate that memory with him. Thad, in a deep bass, uttered the word in an authoritative tone. Father! The shuffling abruptly ceased. For a moment, there was no movement or noise. Nothing as if the men had been paralyzed by the single word. Then, from the darkness, came a response. Thad was appalled at the nearness of the speaker, apparently only inches away. Fetid breath wafted past his face. Father? Relief spread through Thad like the warmth from a shot of rotgut. It had worked, after all. The man's tone registered a distinct emotion, what did the emotion imply? Could it be loyalty? Devotion, perhaps? Thad couldn't be sure of the particulars, but apparently the men still retained memories of a family, still felt the unique nature of the bond existing between father and son. Had their father told them stories of the world above? Had he taught them to survive, provided encouragement when they failed, kept their hope for a better life burning inside of them? Thad reasoned it must be so, else why the powerful emotion evident in the man's response? There was even a remote chance they thought he was their father. After all, the homesteaders had been religious folk. 
Surely they taught these men the concept of resurrection. Father, the voice repeated, eagerly, hopefully. Thad drew in a deep breath, released it. He unclenched his fists, relaxed. Father, Thad assured his listeners. Then, three words issued forth from the darkness. Only three words, yet they were sufficient to completely unnerve Thad and send his mind reeling into a black void beyond conscious thought, beyond his wildest imagination. Father, taste good. I know what my cinema fans are thinking, but it really is coincidence. This story was published in the book Singularities, which was released August 2nd, 2005. The film, The Descent, premiered in the UK just one month earlier on July 8th, but was not released in the US until August of 2006. So, if you'd thought you'd sniffed out some plagiarism, sorry to disappoint you. Speaking of sniffing, how's that for a transition? Our second story explores the olfactory world. You probably don't think too much about your sense of smell. But believe me, you would, if suddenly it was so strong, so intense, that it revealed hidden secrets you'd rather not discovered. Sense To smell sweet is to stink. Montaigne, Essays Tyler knew something had changed. Immediately upon his release from the hospital, he began noticing things. At first he assumed it was his imagination, simply a renewed zest for life any person would experience subsequent to a near-fatal head injury. Colors seemed richer. He was sure he was able to detect subtle, previously unknown flavors in food and drink. His fingertips appeared more sensitive to changes in pressure and temperature. But the sense... Ah, the sense... They most definitely were not imaginary. Tyler's parents came to the hospital directly after church on a blazing August morning. Though he was looking out the window as they walked into the room, Tyler knew his mother and father had arrived. His mother's perfume and his father's cologne announced their presence. Tyler perceived other things as well. Was that peppermint? Yes. His mother was no doubt chewing gum. His father must have shined his shoes recently for the odor of shoe polish was unmistakable, as was the smell of sour milk. Emma must have spit up, Tyler guessed silently. How about it, Tyler? He heard his father say in cheery tones. You ready to go home? Or have you decided you'd like to stay here for a while? Tyler turned to see his parents framed in the doorway, his baby sister cradled in his mother's arms. I'm ready, Tyler said. I'm way ready. They hurried through the hospital, corridor, elevator, corridor, front door, then into the August sunshine. The car swept along the street, reeking of exhaust fumes, oil, gas, and coolant. A breeze passing over a park located across from the hospital conveyed additional scents as well. Pine trees, marigolds, petunias, grass, dog waste, overflowing trash receptacles. No. Tyler's enhanced sense of smell was certainly not imaginary, and he found it to be, by turns, overwhelming, 
enlightening, and frightening. Once home from the hospital, Tyler dropped his bags in the entryway and charged back outside past his startled parents. Hey! His mother called to his back. Just where do you think you're going? Going over to Kevin's house! Tyler yelled over his shoulder. Be careful of that head! Both parents warned in unison. Tyler waved without breaking stride, and as he reached the end of the block, turned the corner, and was lost to sight. He found Kevin sitting on his front porch, head down, eyes focused on the ground. Kevin was unaware of Tyler's presence until Tyler's shadow blocked the sun. Kevin looked up, a grin spreading across his face. What's up? Kevin asked simply, as if he hadn't seen Tyler since the previous day, as if his best friend had not just spent the last four weeks in the hospital. Nothing, Tyler replied with perfect nonchalance, as if a third of his summer vacation had not been wasted in the hospital room, as if he hadn't cheated death by the narrowest of margins. You want to do something? Tyler asked as he sat down next to Kevin. As Kevin opened his mouth to respond, a loud crash and a raised voice emanated from Kevin's house. Tyler smelled cigarette smoke and whiskey sifting through the screen door. Another scent as well, something Tyler couldn't quite identify. Yeah. Can we do something at your house? Kevin wondered aloud, his eyes hopeful, pleading. Sure. Tyler hoped Kevin's mother wouldn't be hurt too badly this time. She was so kind and small. Neither boy uttered a word until Kevin's house was out of sight. Your mom gonna make jelly this year? Tyler asked, in the gentlest of tones. Kevin brightened a bit at the thought. Yeah, we've already got three bags of crab apples down in the basement. They got ripe early this year. And with that, the unpleasantness was buried. For a time. Tyler wanted to tell Kevin about his recently acquired ability to smell just about anything, but like all children his age, he was deathly afraid of being different, of standing out, of ridicule. He told no one, not Kevin, not his parents, not anyone. Kevin and Tyler enjoyed what was left of the summer and, with great reluctance, began the seventh grade. At first, Tyler enjoyed the smells of the classroom. Pencil shavings, chalk dust, Mrs. Corcoran's perfume. They all seemed interesting in the beginning. Gradually, by the second week of September, the novelty of the new school year wore off to be replaced by routine and unrelieved boredom. Autumn revived their flagging spirits. Halloween beckoned with a bony finger. The boys, by mutual consent, felt they were now too old for trick-or-treating. In order to fill the void, they decided to pay a visit to one of the many houses around town tricked up to instill fear in the most stout-hearted individuals. On Halloween, with the onset of darkness, Tyler walked to Kevin's house. As Tyler ascended the porch steps, he could smell the dinner Kevin's mother had recently cooked. The odors of fried chicken, asparagus, and buttered biscuits complemented the wood smoke from someone's chimney. Tyler closed his eyes and tilted his head backward as he smelled some of the crabapple jelly Kevin's mother made every autumn. He smiled. Without warning, the odor of cigarette smoke and whiskey tapped Tyler rudely on the shoulder. What the hell do you want? The voice came from behind Tyler. Uh, I came to get Kevin. We were going to a haunted house tonight, Tyler managed to say. Kevin's father stood in the shadows, strangling a brown paper bag with one hand. A cigarette dangled from the corner of his mouth. He stared at Tyler for a few seconds, with eyes that seemed to have trouble focusing. 
He staggered slightly. Oh, it's you, Kevin's father said at last. Didn't recognize you from behind. Tyler could only nod in response. Why the hell are you standing here sniffing the air like a damn bloodhound? Kevin's father continued. If you came to get Kev, go get him. Kevin's father walked past Tyler into the house. Kev! Kev! Where the hell are you? Your friend's here! Tyler walked onto the front porch and up to the front door, but waited outside. After a moment, he heard footsteps descending the stairs, and Kevin appeared. Let's go, Kevin whispered. The boys had selected a haunted house within walking distance of their homes. As they made their way through the neighborhood, they would occasionally see a schoolmate going from door to door with bag in hand. Kevin and Tyler would lose no time taunting their acquaintance, telling him he was too old to trick or treat. Although neither boy would admit to feeling the least bit nostalgic, each one desperately missed the pastime. Fifteen minutes later, the boys paid their money, waited in line, and entered the haunted house. They were preceded by a group of four girls. Kevin and Tyler need only listen to the screams of the girls to know when something or someone was going to jump out of the woodwork and scare them. Although they ridiculed the girls, a few of the stunts were good enough to scare the boys as well. And Tyler noticed afterward a strange scent on the air. Disturbing. Sinister. The scent was unfamiliar, though it smelled vaguely like an electrical fire. Tyler thought a malfunction in a piece of machinery might be to blame. Do you smell that? He asked Kevin. Kevin speculatively sniffed the air. I don't smell anything. Tyler discovered the stench wasn't persistent. It was transitory, evanescent, and always coinciding with the girl's screams. Eventually, Tyler reasoned it out. The mysterious odor could only be one thing. Fear. This new development made Tyler uneasy. Previously, his sense of smell had only magnified familiar odors. Now things had taken an eerie twist, leaving Tyler to wonder where it all might lead. Suddenly, Halloween was a memory. The drudgery of schoolwork blighted the lives of Tyler and Kevin once again. For another month, they labored on equations and sentences until Thanksgiving provided another respite. Then the feasts and fellowship were gone, leaving the boys gazing longingly at the calendar as they waited for Christmas. Three days before Christmas, Tyler and his family visited an elderly relative lodged in a nursing home. Many of the residents were afflicted with terminal maladies. Immediately upon entering the home, Tyler became uncomfortable. A stale scent hung in the air. Not potent, but nevertheless outlasting the antiseptics and deodorants and perfumes and surviving the air purifiers. Gray, insipid, lifeless. Tyler couldn't see a hooded figure, scythe in hand, stalking the hallways and peeking in rooms, but he could easily imagine such a scene. Tyler smelled death. It seemed to lodge in his airways, thick and syrupy. Just short of gagging, he told his father he'd forgot to lock the door of the car and excused himself. Once outside, he gulped in the iced air. With each breath, the panicky feeling subsided until he once again felt normal. That evening, Tyler took some cookies his mother had baked, along with a Christmas card, to Kevin's house. As Kevin's mother answered the door, a tide of cigarette smoke and whiskey fumes washed over Tyler. 
I brought these over for... Tyler stopped short, his eyes widening as he noticed her face. Eyes blackened, lips split. I... He couldn't finish. He didn't know what was appropriate. What could he say? Merry Christmas? Thank you, Tyler. And please thank your mother, too. Kevin's mother managed to sob through the mangled lips. And this is for you. I know how much you like it. She handed Tyler a jar of her crabapple jelly. Thanks was all Tyler could manage as he turned and walked home. The next morning, Tyler toasted two slices of bread, buttered them, and then opened the jar of the jelly. He quickly realized his sense of smell had undergone yet another transformation. The scent of crab apples welled up from the jar, but there was more. Tyler closed his eyes, inhaled deeply, and detected... blossoms, rainwater, and soil. As unlikely as it seemed, he could smell the component parts of the crab apples, all the elements that went into their creation. Astonished, Tyler could only wonder how it was possible. After returning from the hospital, Tyler visited the library and read all he could find concerning the sense of smell. None of the literature so much as hinted this new experience was possible. Was it just his imagination? Tyler hoped so. It was getting too strange. But at dinner time, it happened again. The steak smelled of corn and grass, the bread of dark, loamy soil and thunderstorms. That night, he dreamed of crawling on his hands and knees, all the while eating grass and dirt. Disturbed at first, he eventually resigned himself to the situation. When Tyler returned to school, he found the restroom, which normally reeked of urine and intestinal gas, smelled a bit like a cafeteria. His unique sense of smell had resolved the bodily wastes of his schoolmates into their constituent parts. He could, if he so decided, tell the boys standing next to him at the urinal what he'd consumed at his last meal. Kevin and Tyler managed to weather the long, dark stretch between Christmas and spring break. At that time, Tyler noticed a change at Kevin's house. The cigarette smoke and whiskey fumes, so prevalent in the past, were absent. Kevin and his mother no longer wore dark, ugly bruises, nor did they pad softly through the house, fearing of making too much noise. They laughed at little, unimportant things and smiled for no reason whatsoever. Tyler never mentioned the departure of Kevin's father. Tyler easily imagined him smoking and drinking and abusing another woman in some other city. It was just like the man to abandon his family. Tyler wondered idly why it hadn't happened sooner. When summer arrived... Kevin and Tyler decided to form a lawn mowing service. They worked hard, but not too often, just enough to finance their summer activities. They were well known at the pool, the cinema complex, and the gym. A trail of pleasant memories led from June through August, making the start of the new school year somewhat easier to accept. One day in September, Tyler went to Kevin's house to help him with his homework. The boys sat at the kitchen table as Kevin's mother began making a batch of crabapple jelly. The crab apples bubbled and boiled on the stove, releasing an intoxicating fragrance. Tyler breathed in the aroma, and then froze in panic. Mingled with the scent of crab apples, the unmistakable smell of cigarettes and whiskey. Tyler pictured Kevin's father walking through the front door, gun or axe in hand, ready to settle things with his family once and for all. Tyler, terrified, quickly glanced around the room, at the doors, the windows behind him. 
Kevin's father was nowhere in sight. Then, Tyler knew. He looked at the pot on the stove, his gaze traveling past it to the window, opening onto the backyard and the huge crabapple tree with its yellowing leaves. Which one did it? Tyler wondered. Which one of them was finally pushed too far? Was it Kevin or his mother? Maybe it was both of them. Tyler shrugged and resumed his homework. He envisioned the roots of the crabapple tree burrowing through clothing into a package of cigarettes and through the cork of a whiskey bottle, flavoring the crabapples above with distinctive scents. Once again, I'm James Allen May, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of October by May. October by May is a bi-weekly podcast with new episodes every other Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a single sojourn into October. Please leave us a rating and review, as well as any comments or replies that you may have for us. Also visit us at octoberbymay.com for more info as well as links to the books by Edward T. May. Descents by Edward T. May Sense by Edward T. May Recitation and audio design by James Allen May Theme by Hassan Nazari Rabadi.